Let us pray for our catechumens. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. Almighty and everlasting God, who dost continually enrich thy church with a new offspring, increase the faith and understanding of our catechumens, that they, being born again in the water of baptism, may be numbered among the sons of thine adoption, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so before we start today, I want to go over the schedule for the next few weeks. Because it's getting crazy time. Uh, as we, or, or Holy Week, as we call it in the church. <laughs> uh, we will have today's class, and we will have, uh, then next Sunday, we will not meet in here. We will probably meet outside the front door of the church. Okay, because we're going to do church tour next week. All right. Because we're not, I don't want to meet in here, set up the TV, you sit here for six minutes, and then we walk, go, go over there, that wastes a bunch of time. Watch this video sometime this week at home. Be to be number 113, six-minute church tour. Now, I will warn you, this is an Eastern church that he's going to walk you through. So there will be differences. And that's why it's much easier if you kind of get the general idea, but then the details are going to be different for when we actually do it. Okay? The week after that will be our last class before Pascha. Okay? I'm going to leave that open. So bring your questions, bring your comments, bring whatever you need me to answer before Pascha, especially those of you who are getting chrismated. Bring those and we'll go through them, okay? Um, I went through the list of topics that we went through a few weeks ago that everybody asked, and we've covered almost all of them. Um, we're going to cover one of them today, um, and then the church tour, we have to do the church tour because that's just mandatory. Um, so, um, then we will have Palm Sunday, where we don't have class. We will have Pascha, we don't have class, okay? Then the three weeks after that, which are left in the Sunday school year, um, I'm going to be teaching a combined class, all the adults, uh, for three weeks, um, and we're going to be talking about various aspects of, uh, concerning salvation, Okay? So Father will be busy working on Parish Life Conference, because that's coming up before we know it. Um, so I'm going to teach after Pascha for those, those three remaining re weeks in the church school year. So um, today, we're going to cover a topic that y'all asked me to cover, which is, why hasn't orthodoxy spread? Now, I'm going to start with a video here from, of course, Steve. Um, it doesn't. It, it's it's relevant, but you know, there's no. He doesn't have like a specific video on why it doesn't. You know, on the exact topic. So let me get logged back in here. So this is B to B number one thirty. Four tips for being an Orthodox Christian. Just four. Just four. That's all you have time for. Six minutes. minutes. Chances are that 
said, most of your neighbors, most of the people you go to school with, most of the people you work with, aren't Orthodox. And some of those people may have never even heard of the church, or may have some serious misconceptions about it. To help navigate some of these challenges, I'm very happy to welcome Father Andrew Stephen Davis. On top of serving the community of St. Paul's Orthodox Church in Emmaus, Pennsylvania, Father Andrew is a podcaster and blogger for Ancient Faith Ministries. He's also the author of two books, An Introduction to God, as well as Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy, which is a great resource. Thanks for joining us, Father Andrew. Thanks for having me, Steve. You're right. It can be difficult to intentionally live as an Orthodox Christian in a world that doesn't know or at least doesn't understand the church. I was received in the church while I was in college, and now as a parish priest and a podcaster and author and dad raising four Orthodox kids, I'm particularly sensitive to these challenges. For purposes of this short video, I think we can offer four tips for living as an Orthodox Christian in a society that isn't too familiar with the church. Tip number one, and most important of all, get to know Christ. As Steve has mentioned time and time again, our goal as Christians isn't simply to think about God, to learn abstract ideas about God. Our goal is to truly know God and be known by Him, to commune with Him as members of His body set aside our false and broken selves and open ourselves to the Lord, so that as St. Paul said, it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. This takes work, the hard work of repentance, of knowing and confessing our sins, of forming the sort of heart that delights in God rather than in sin. And it's not easy work, and it's not abstract work, it's deeply personal and deeply intimate. It's the work of the heart, not merely the head. If we start here, grounded in Christ, we can move on to the next chapter. Number two, learn what you can about the church. Over time, and with study, I realize that there are wonderful and quite beautiful reasons that we fast during Lent or use icons in our prayer. Answers that are far more moving and uplifting than because that's the way it is. Grounded in our love of Christ and our connection with Him, we can begin to deepen our understanding of the church and Christian practice. Grounded in Christ, we can begin to deepen our understanding of scripture and theology and ethics, developing the language and skills to help others find Christ at work in their lives. Who knows? You may even decide to go to seminary for a few years of intense study, which would be pretty amazing. As we prepare to engage with others who aren't Orthodox Christians or are yet are somehow estranged from the church, we should keep the third tip in mind. Number three. Engage others with an open mind and heart. As Steve covered way back in episode 51, we can't talk if we aren't first willing to listen. Because if we're not willing to listen, it means we're more interested in making a point, in being right and proving others wrong, than in actually seeing that person, hearing that person, and loving that person. If we aren't willing to listen, to approach others with an open mind and heart, we're simply making things about us. Our pride, our agenda, our plans and desires. Hopefully we'll start with communion with Christ. If we ground ourselves in knowledge of God rather than in knowledge about God, we'll remember that this isn't about making arguments or proving a point. It's about finding God at work in our lives and helping others to find Him as well. This takes patience, it takes love, it takes listening to people, getting to know them so that we can effectively minister to them rather than treat them as the opponent in a religious debate. And it takes humility and trust, realizing that the only heart we control is our own, and that we need to work to shape our hearts to love without conditions and without expectations. It's kind of like the parable of the sower. The 
most we can do is to be the sower and be ready, willing, and able to scatter the seeds of the gospel. Whether or not those seeds take root is out of our hands, and that's okay. God doesn't call us to be successful, but to be faithful. Which takes us to our fourth and final tip. Number four, treat this challenge as an opportunity. It can be a lonely feeling to be the only one in the cafeteria doing your cross before liturgy on Sunday morning. Being a doesn't want to stay up too late on Saturday. Or the only one who doesn't want to stay up too late on Saturday night so you don't miss liturgy on Sunday morning. Being a Christian is difficult and challenging. I definitely can't minimize that, and it's also a special calling. It's an opportunity. You may be the only Orthodox Christian at school or work. You may be the only person in someone's life that's at all interested in sharing the gospel or introducing them to Christ. So this challenge is also an opportunity. God may not be calling you to share his good news with entire nations. He may not be calling you to do what the apostles did and travel to the ends of the earth to preach Christ crucified and resurrected. And yet, he may be calling you to be his apostle at school or work, in your neighborhood, or maybe even your home. He may be calling you to be a witness to his steadfast love, his constant mercy, a witness to his victory over death and the joy of his eternal kingdom. He may be calling you to be his hands, to do his work in this broken world of ours. So, if God is calling you to something, scratch that. Because God is calling you to something. As he is calling all of us to something, it's time to start getting ready. Maybe it's time to start getting to know the Lord so that others can come to know him through you. So let's be the bee and become Christ's ambassadors in this world. Be the bee and live orthodoxy. Remember to like and subscribe and share. I'll see you all next week. Thanks for some. Okay. There were some things in there that, that, that are worth touching on. Um, specifically, for example, as an Orthodox Christian, you may be the only per you may be the only Orthodox Christian your friends know. You may be the only Orthodox Christian at work. You may be the only Orthodox Christian. So when people think of Orthodoxy, this huge second largest community of Christians in the world, you're their example. Right? That's it. No pressure. No pressure. No pressure. So, um, but it is, it, you know, and, and, and it's, you know, people say, well, oh, you know, if, if, if church comes up in a, in a conversation, oh, where do you go to church? And last week, I was, no, two weeks ago, whatever, uh, so recently, how about that? Um, <laughs> I heard somebody answer, oh, well, we go to this Western Rite, and, and they were just giving this explanation that the person was immediately lost with. They don't need to know all that. Just say, I go to an Orthodox church. And then if they start digging, then you can say, oh, well, yeah, we're kind of, we're a little different. We're Western, right? Not, you know, but, but just, you know, do you go to church? Yeah, I go to an Orthodox church. Simple. Keep it simple. People will understand much better. Otherwise, you lose them right there and they're gone. Okay. Um, so, there's three brothers at Holy Trinity Greek Orthodox Church in, in Dallas, the Zeros brothers. One of them I just saw, he's, he's now 90. Um, I don't know, I don't think they're triplets, but they're all pretty, almost identical if they're not identical. How about that? 
Um, and they refer, it's, it's Gus, Basil, and uh, Chris, and they refer to themselves, as, they refer to themselves as the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> Gus says, yeah, I'm the ugly. And everybody knows between Basil and Chris which is good and which is bad. Um, so today we're going to cover some topics about the Orthodox <laughs> Church that are good, some that are bad, and some that are ugly. Okay? Well, how can this be? Isn't the Orthodox Church perfection on earth and this, that, and the other? Well, keep in mind the church is a paradox. By definition, the church is perfect. Why? Because she is the body of Christ. Right? But paradoxically, she's made up of imperfect people like, oh, me and you. Right? So, whenever humans are involved with something, it gets messy. It's always messy. The Orthodox Church is no exception. Okay? Don't let anything I tell you today scare you, okay? Because I'll try not to get to the really scary... No, um, <laughs> I'll be honest with you, and, and some of the stuff I'm going to cover is not pretty. But um, it's not... And I'll also tell you, though, why it's not worth worrying about, okay? So, why hasn't orthodoxy spread? That was one of the questions that was asked uh, on our list. <coughs> I think there's several reasons why. Um, one is we're quite demanding. We are quite demanding, okay? We uh, are not the church of anything goes, right? We're the church of, you better be here on Sunday, where were you? We're the church of, uh, we have fasting during Lent, and not, not just during Lent, during other times of the year. Um, I saw a Coptic webpage one time, says, we fast 263 days during the year. Now, cops are a little more serious about it uh, sometimes. But, uh, but yeah, we, we fast, okay? Um, you know, we, we still believe the tithe is 10% pre-tax, you know, that kind of thing. We are, are uh, you know, there, it's, it's not an easy thing to be an Orthodox Christian. If it is, you're not doing it right, Okay? I heard someone refer to orthodoxy as the Marine Corps of Christianity. Okay, um, There have been people who have come and, and looked at orthodoxy and said, I can't do that. There are people who have become orthodox and then said, I can't do this. And they leave. Okay, Yes, there are ex-orthodox. Sad, but... Um, but yeah, we are demanding. We are we we are rigorous. You have a question. Yes. Oh, you were leaning forward. I thought you had a question. Yes. Okay. So um, I think that's you know it because you know. I'll resume my posture. No, 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 no. I just if you have a question, please stop me anytime. Um, you know, it's not like you know you can go to the to the you know, generic generic church with no label on it. It used to be Baptist, but now I don't want to call themselves Baptist because that scares people. Um, and I'm not talking about any church in particular, trust me. Um, my my mom and dad went to a a, a Wilshire Baptist church, not Wilshire, um, um, Biltmore Baptist Church with my aunt. She worked there. In her 80s, she was working there. They, they hired her. Um, 20,000 members or something like that, you know. She was having to plan a party for the vacation Bible school teachers, all 200 of them, mm -hmm. right? I mean, huge place, right? 
They brought me home the bulletin. Guess what one word does not appear in that bulletin any place, any way, any form? Jesus. Jesus. It was just like, oh, and we have this program, and we have this program, and we have all these programs for people, but there's no, it's just, we're here to serve you, not to teach you how to serve others, almost. There's a lot of, there's a lot of church light out there, shall I say. It's almost like motivational speaking when you hear the sermons, you know. It's... Well, and then you get to the Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen, right there. Where, you know, you get to that level, where he's, he can fill, you know, the, 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 was it a quorum where, where the Rockets used to play? I mean, he's filling a basketball arena every Sunday. But are people leaving there with a sense of responsibility, of duty, of, 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 of you know, are they being challenged? Or are they just being motivated? Because there's a difference. Motivation is optional. Challenge is mandatory, right? The Orthodox Church, we challenge people. All of us should be. All of us should feel challenged when we leave this place. We should all feel challenged to be a better Christian. Not motivated. That's part of it. But motivation is, yeah, you you know, go out there and, and try to do your best. You know, that's kind of optional type behavior. Challenged is. This is what has to be done. We all, you know, this is the road we have to follow. So I think the rigor is part of it. Um, the message of the Orthodox Church, let's face it, in today's world is not very popular. People don't want to hear what we have to say. People don't want to hear that we don't believe that if it feels good, do it. You know, we are counterculture. Okay, we have always been counterculture. Right. I think a lot of the young people that I know, though, are coming back, not, not necessarily to the Orthodox Church, but to more conservative. Yes, and, and we'll get to that. Okay. We'll get to that. Because people are hungering. People are needing. Um, what they're looking for is, is somebody, the best way I, I saw it put was, people are looking for authentic authority. Mm-hmm. We've lost faith in a lot of the churches because, you know, you see... You see that, that, you know, it used to be, what denomination are you? How, do denominational labels really mean anything anymore? If I tell somebody, you know, if somebody says they're an Episcopalian, do I know what they mean no. or what no. they believe? No. No. If, I say, if, if somebody tells me lately they're a Methodist, do I know what they believe? Do I know what they mean? No. Because they don't, even know what they they don't, because they don't know what they mean anymore. Right? <clears throat> right? You know, there's a lot, there's, a, I've heard several Southern Baptists lately tell me that um, they've, you know, Calvinism is sneaking in. You know? It's to what degree are you a Calvinist? To what degree are you a Calvinist? Um, and I'll, I had one driver working for me. He was going to the seminary, Southwestern, and he was describing his faith like I described going to Luby's. Well, he's a little bit of this, and he's a little bit of this, and he's a little bit of this, you know, and I guess that's the, 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 you know, the, the Libby's platter for the day. You know, the Orthodox Church is not popular. Why? Because we don't have Burger King theology. Have it your way. Okay? One of the reasons we're seeing the Anglican Communion explode, just explode, is because Anglicanism was built on a compromise. 
the language of the Book of Common Prayer, which we have some of it in our, which part is what we, some of what we had to change to make the liturgy of Saint Econ, we had to change it because it was written in such a way that it was a compromise, that you could read it and believe all sorts of different things and still pray that same prayer. I have a question, just a quick No. Go ahead. Is there any way to find out exactly what was changed? Because I have an old book of common prayer that I got when I got confirmed. Is there like any place where you can like see it in red what they took out and what they changed? Uh, that not that I not not directly that I found. <laughs> so I can I have to do this. So I can tell you though. Okay. Um, we removed filioque. Of course. Okay. We added an explicit epiclesis. Yes. When Father says, "Send down Thy Holy Spirit upon these Thy gifts and creatures of bread and wine," that's not in the Book of Common Prayer. What's in the Book of Common Prayer is that this may become for us the body and blood. Well, what does that mean? If you're a if you're if you're leaning more toward the Baptist side of, of Anglicanism, which remember the Baptists came from Anglicanism, um, then then you believe it's a memorial, right? If you're on the Anglo-Catholic side, then you believe in the real presence, right? But you can read that prayer either way. So we had to make it so you can't read that prayer either way. And then the other thing that was added was um, also during the canon, you'll hear um, when we pray for the dead, explicit prayers for the dead when we remember the dead. So that was added. Um, those are the main changes. And the other two changes, the only the only other change that really strikes me is right before communion, the prayer, I believe, O Lord, and I confess. That's straight from St. John Chrysostom, and that was added at the request of our patriarch. Um, because what for what reason? To make sure everybody's clear, this is not a memorial. This is not just a remembrance. This is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So we have to say, I believe, O Lord, and I confess, and that this is truly thine own precious body, and this is truly thine own precious blood. Okay, So there's no doubt about it. That was what was changed. Are those those three things okay? It was exactly the discussion of the real presence in the Eucharist that made me leave the Anglican Church. Yeah, it yeah, was exactly that. Yeah. Um, so because because again the prayer is written in in, in the book and that's that was that was the way Cram intentionally wrote it. It was the Elizabethan compromise so that everybody could remain under the umbrella of the Church of England, whether they were Puritans or whether they were Anglo Catholics. Okay, so, um, but our message in the Orthodox Church is not popular in society today, right? We still have sexual ethics, Oops. right? We still, we still believe in good and evil, right? Not relativistic ethics, right? So that's not popular today. People just want to be able to do what they do and get affirmed for it. Um... Of course, one of the biggest stumbling blocks here in the United States is I was on an Anglican blog yesterday and somebody said, well, I was looking at different churches because, you know, Anglicanism is falling apart. And I looked at Orthodoxy, but somebody said, oh, are you going to become Greek or Russian? <laughs> right? Ethnicity. The sad truth is and, and um, that many of our Orthodox churches, especially in the Northeast, are ethnic enclaves. They're ethnic enclaves. And they don't want to be anything else. Sadly, some of them. And they're dying. And they're dying. And those of us that aren't ethnic enclaves um, uh, will grow. Now, to be honest, we're an ethnic enclave. 
That's the problem. It's not the problem. The problem is not that, and this, I made this, I, the problem is not that orthodoxy is ethnic. It's that the, orth the ethnicity of orthodoxy doesn't match our, our ethnicity. That's the problem. That's why for some of us, Western Rite was, was a great option, right? Because it matched our ethnicity, right? If you're wanting to become Orthodox and you go into Astoria, where, he's, where Steve's from, right? In a, <laughs> and as he admits, a super Greek neighborhood, right? And you have the additional burden of trying to learn Greek along with trying to become Orthodox, that's going to be a big, big enough hurdle that a lot of people aren't going to want to overcome it. I've heard that's the first question you're asked at a lot of those churches. Are you Greek? Are you Greek? Mm -hmm. I went up to see a 98-year-old woman in, or 97-year-old woman up in the hospital one time in, in Boston. Um, and she was in a coma, whatever. She was gone. She was Alzheimer's, whatever. Um, but her 98-year-old sister was taking care of her. Right? And, and so I explained who I was. I explained I was at the seminary. And she's like, oh, are you Greek? I said, no. She's like, that's okay. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. Right? So ethnicity is a major hurdle. Okay? Why is that? Why is, why is that so true in the United States? Well, you have to look at the history of how orthodoxy came to America. Okay? Um, part of it came in the right way. Part of it came in backwards. The part that came in the right way was the Russians sent missionaries like St. Innocent to Alaska. They went and learned, you know, St. Innocent learned six dialects of the, of the tribes there on, on in Alaska, and he ministered to them in their own language, right? Okay? And he brought orthodoxy to them and presented it to them, and they integrated it into their society. Much of Alaska is still orthodox, okay? It's probably the most orthodox state in the Union. Um, that ca that's the right way. The other way it came in was um, during the great waves of immigration, okay, you had pockets of people come in. For example, why is there an Antiochian church in Kearney, Nebraska? Why? Because one family made it there from Ellis Island or wherever they came in, and, and wrote home to their relatives, things are beautiful here in Kearney, Nebraska. Why don't you come join us? And so it, you develop this Arab community in Kearney, Nebraska, of all places, right? Um, this was going along great, you know, and, they, and then after a while they would say, hey, you know what we miss? We miss church, okay? That's why, you know, St. <coughs> Raphael, he was going from all over the, he literally went all over the country because these communities wanted church, but they didn't have a priest. Or they had a priest, but, but he was their only bishop. So he spent all his time on trains going around the country. Right? Then what happened? What was the great calamity that, 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 that tore everything up? The Russian Revolution. Because before that, all of the church, all the Orthodox churches in the United States were under the jurisdictions of the Russians. Why? Because they were the ones who sent missionaries. They were the ones who sent bishops. Okay? So everybody was under the Russians. There is no disagreement about that. Okay? But then the Russian Revolution, what did that mean also? It meant the Tsar was paying for a lot of good stuff. Okay? He was sending money, too. He'd pay for priests to come here. He, they, you know, churches, you know, that were, were struggling, whatever. Um, but then the Russian Revolution happened. 
support got cut off from Russia. Okay, the bishops got cut off from Russia. So what happened is, you have all these little communities now, without guidance, without an overseer, without a bishop. So what do they do? Well, if you're a Greek community, you write home to Greece. Hey, we're stuck. We don't have a priest. Or we don't have a bishop. Right? So in the United, in most of the United States, except for Alaska, church happened backwards. Instead of missionaries coming, establishing missions, and, and, and spreading the word, what happened was the, the faithful came, set themselves up, and did the best they could, and now we have this mess of overlapping jurisdictions. Why? Because the Arabs sent home to, to Damascus and said, hey, we need a bishop, right? Hey, you know, the Greeks sent home to Greece and said, hey, we need, we need a, a bishop. You know, the Russians sent and they said, we don't know who to send to, so we, you know, the Russians ended up like in three or four different jurisdictions. The Bulgarians, the Serbs, everybody did the same thing. So now you have like 15 overlapping jurisdictions in the United States. The Assembly of Bishops is designed to fix that, but given the next, one of the other things I'm going to talk about, um, that's going to be difficult. So, if people know what orthodoxy is, or they've heard of orthodoxy, how have they heard about it? Somebody if, that knows. My big fat Greek wedding. <laughs> what was that? My Greek? big fat Greek wedding. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Greek food festivals. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's the way. Right? So the major way that they have orthodoxy presented to them is ethnic food festivals. Now, I love a good food festival as well as anybody else. But there's a problem with that. People think you have to be... In fact, I saw it one year at Holy Trinity. I love Holy Trinity, but God help them, they're Greek. <laughs> one year they had t-shirts, right? And, it's, and they had a name tag on it. And it said, hello, my name is blank... Opolis. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, th I think the Greeks have a problem. The Russians to a lesser extent, but the Greeks definitely have this problem. 97% of Greeks identify as Greek Orthodox. In okay? Greece or here? In Greece. In Greece. Okay, there's a few Greek Catholics. You know, they always show Greece and they always show Santorini. Santorini is pretty much Catholic, actually, so not a good example. Um, but 97% of Greeks identify as Greek Orthodox in Greece. Okay. <coughs> so to be Greek is pretty much to be Orthodox, right? Russian to a, a lesser extent. I mean, there are other because in Russia there are so many different minorities and things like that. But if you hear someone is ethnically Russian, you you pretty much can you know oftentimes assume. They're orthodox, right? This leads, I think, to a logical fallacy on, on their part sometimes where they think the reverse is true. Oh, you're orthodox. Are you Greek? That's okay. They think to be Greek, to or be orthodox, you must be Greek, right? To become orthodox, one must Hellenize, right? To be orthodox, one must be Russian. To become orthodox, one must Russify. Okay, and that's a problem, especially here in the United States, with our ethnicity. We, you know, and the only way we present orthodoxy to people is ethnic food festivals. Okay, so we have to be able somehow to move away from that 
kind of model where we're not portraying orthodoxy as the religion of a specific ethnic minority anymore. Um, Father Peter Gilquist, God bless his, God, you know, bless his soul, uh, was, I was having a conversation with, with him one day, and he was remarking that at the time, 78% of our clergy in the Antiochian Archdiocese were converts. 78%. And I said, yes, and I look forward to the day when that's no longer true. Well, of course, he's Department of Missions Evangelism, and he looks at me like I'm crazy. He says, what do you mean? I said, because in the future, it'll be the sons of those converts. It'll be the sons who are not converts, but are themselves cradle, right? My godchildren, for the most part, are cradle Orthodox. But their names aren't Opolis. Their names are Whitson and, and Lopez, right? So once people start seeing Orthodoxy associated with names that aren't indicative of a specifically Orthodox ethnic minority, then we'll have a breakthrough, I think. Where, where we can, you know, we're not, we're, we won't be a niche market anymore, shall we say. It's an interesting note, uh, got a call uh, Thursday, and Annie was talking to him, and the lady talking was fascinated, our last night of our priest was McNary. Yeah. Fascinated, <laughs> because uh, she's coming from a Catholic background, she felt kind of like this strange well, old McNary. Father McDowdy, oh yes. <laughs> There's a great scene in The Quiet Man. Have you ever, ever seen the movie The Quiet Man? Oh, yeah. Um, where, um, uh, anyway, the, the, the Protestant minister is not doing well in the village, right? So um, the Protest, the, 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 his bishop is coming to visit, you know. So the Catholic priest... Uh, tells tells all his parishioners, he says, I want, when he's riding down the road in his carriage, I want you to all get out there and cheer like Protestants. And so it shows here, he and his he and his curate have covered up their collars so they don't look Catholic, and they're like, oh, yes, good bishop, yes, yes, yes. Right? Yeah. Um, cradle versus convert. This is another, another kind of obstacle that I think we're overcoming. Um, Steve actually tweeted about this a while back. Uh trying to get rid of this, this cradle versus convert thing, because none of us are really converts. Actually, all of us are converts, right? It's just a matter of when did we come into the church. Some came in shortly after birth. Some came in, some of us came in later in life. Okay, so we're all converts. None of, no one is born orthodox. And the sooner we can get rid of that kind of assumption, the better. Um, but this idea that if you're ethnically... Arab, Greek, Russian, your cradle, or whatever, um, and then the rest of us are just converts, and we need to sit and learn. Um, I liken it to immigration. You ever notice some of the best Americans are immigrants? Usually the best Americans are immigrants. Why? Because they've come to appreciate what we have, that the rest of us who are born here take for granted. You know? So... Converts, like you know, in the in the Orthodox Church, are much like immigrants in the United States. We love Orthodoxy. We want to know all about it. We want to do, you know, it's not a birthright for us. It's something we had to go out and and find. So, um, if we can get over that, one of the remaining burdens that the the other thing uh, I mentioned it earlier is um, in the 1940s. 
Metropolitan Antony Bashir of Thrice Blessed Memory decreed that in the Antiochian Archdiocese, um, our language of liturgy would be English. Okay. 1930s he did that. Actually, late 1930s, I believe it was. Um, so the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese has always been the most viewed as the most convert-friendly. It, for the Greeks, it wasn't until 1971 that Metropolitan Jacobus said, okay, you can say the creed in English, but everything else still has to be in Greek. And he received death threats for that. Language is a huge obstacle. Okay? The only, the, before I became Orthodox, you know, we took our, we, I was in Episcopalian, our youth group, we went to St. Demetrius. Didn't understand a thing that was going on. Had no clue what was going on. Even though there was a, it had a Greek-English book. Couldn't follow along. Because it was all Greek. Greek. And keep in mind that the Greek they use in, in the Greek archdiocese is not modern Greek. Okay? Now we, you know, we use modern English. We use a hieratic form of modern English, but we're still using modern English. But the Greek that's used in liturgy, if you try to speak that in the streets in Athens, they're going to look at you like, you know. Um, so, but, but, you know, and the same thing in, in you know, our, some of the Russian churches. They don't speak Russian in, in the Russian churches. It's Church Slavonic. It's a different language. It's an older language. Right? Now, I love Greek. I love Arabic. I love Church Slavonic. But if I had to come to church every Sunday and that's all I heard, is that someplace that makes me feel welcome? That I want to stay? Mm -hmm. So language continues to be, it's not nearly the issue today as it was 20 years ago, but, um, what time is it, 12.15, all right, so, um, I'm going to skip some of the ugly stuff, so, I want to know the ugly stuff, the ugly stuff, okay, so here's the ugly stuff, in a nutshell, I'm not going to go into the details I was, because it's already 12.15, the ugly stuff is, the Orthodox Church is not perfect. It's made up of imperfect people. Okay? So we have currently... What's the biggest thing about the Orthodox Church in the news right now? Ukraine. The Ukraine. Russia versus Constantinople. At each other's throats. Right? Is this anything new? No. I didn't even know it was news. I mean. Is it going to be the last thing that we have like that? No, of course not. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. Whenever we have quarrels like this, they're all administrative. Okay? Some of us who came from the Anglican Church, we got into fights. They were doctrinal. They were about what we believe versus what you believe. We're not believing the same stuff, yet we're trying to live under the same roof. Okay? So the Methodist Church, they're in the news. Why? Because they're having a doctrinal fight. They're trying to, to, to they're questioning whether, you know, two men can marry, two women can marry, and that's a Christian marriage, right? We don't have that problem in Orthodoxy. If you took Patriarch Bartholomew and Patriarch Kirill, 
put them in the same room, all right, and said, what do you believe about this? I don't care what you ask them about. As long as it's doctrinal, they're going to give you the same answer. Our fights are not doctrinal. We fight, oh yeah, absolutely. But they're, they're administrative fights. We're currently in a fight with somebody. We're currently in a fight with Jerusalem. Right? The, Antiochian, the Patriarch of Antioch is not in communion right now with the Patriarch of Jerusalem. Why? Because the Patriarch of Jerusalem established and put a bishop on our territory in Qatar. Right? So we got together with them, we, representatives of other, other churches. We negotiated a settlement, right? A solution it was all supposed to be done. And guess what? Jerusalem hasn't lived up to their end of the bargain. So we're still not in communion with them. All right? But that's administrative. It's an administrative <laughs> issue. Now you may think, well, communion, why, why would you break communion? Okay? That's the first thing that goes. It gets worse after that. Right? But communion is the first thing that goes. Why? Because communion is the end result of unity. For us, it's not a means to union. Right? Remember last week I talked about honest versus dishonest ecumenism? Right? For us, communion is the end goal. And so if in any way, shape, or form that unity is somehow broken, even if it's administrative, that's the first break. <coughs> okay? Then we restore communion. That shows everything's okay again. Right? Because that's how it works in our lives, doesn't it? When we sin, what does that do? It breaks our communion with God. So we have to work through forgiveness and, and absolution to restore that. And then we're in communion. Okay? So, why do these matter? Why do all these things, these ugly things that I've talked about, language and administrative conflicts, and, and how orthodoxy came to the United States backwards, and this, that, and the other. Why is this important? Well, one, you need to know it as background. Um, in case somebody asks. Um, two, it helps you with an understanding of why, you know, orthodoxy is great. Why hasn't it spread? Well, we've got issues. Okay, are they are they major doctrinal issues? No, of course not. All of this stuff's administrative. All of this stuff is administrative. But we have history. You know, the Oriental Orthodox and the and the Eastern Orthodox, we agree on theological issues. What's keeping us from communion? 1,200 years of history. And, well, your bishop anathematized our bishop, but we anathematized this one, and how do we work all that out? Right? 1,200 years of politics. So almost everything I've mentioned here, from, including language, is what? Politics. It's people. Right? So we just have to overcome those problems. So... It's important that you know these things so that you have an understanding of where we're coming from and, and what the problems are. Um, but also that you understand what the problems aren't. Okay. So if you hear about bickering in the Orthodox Church and then you see bickering in, in, in the Methodist Church, understand those are two separate kinds of bickering. Because we're just bickering over territory and stuff like that. They're bickering over the faith. Defining the faith. Redefining the faith. Okay? 
one of the things I've noticed is that those who are known in Protestant circles for being famous theologians, it's because they're innovators. Right? You know, who are the big heroes of Protestant? The reformers. Well, guess what? And they all didn't agree, did they? Otherwise, we wouldn't have 23,000 different, right? In orthodoxy, though, who's famous? What do, you, what do you become famous for in orthodoxy? You're a guardian. You're a guardian of the faith. And here, you're an innovator. Here, you preserve the faith. You guard it. You proclaim it. Okay? So, there's a great hungering, as, as we were discussing earlier, among people. Not just youth, but I think everybody. You know, it used to be there were great institutions that we could all have faith in, right? Well, the government, it's always, you know, or, or the schools or whatever. And one by one, we've seen those crumble. Does anyone really have faith in the government anymore? No, and you shouldn't, right? Right? But people are looking for authentic authority. And we have that. We have the faith of the apostles witnessed to by thousands of martyrs who've died to show that this is the truth. Through time, you know, in the last, in the 20th century, Russia produced more martyrs than in the entire rest of the history of the church combined. You know, for 70 years, the most oppressive system of government on earth tried to wipe out the church. Guess which one's still standing? And you know who kept it alive? The babushkas. <laughs> the little old ladies in their scarves going to church. They didn't care what the KGB thought. They didn't care what, what the, you know, the police thought. The KGB didn't think they were a threat. They weren't a threat? <laughs> and yet they were, weren't they? So why doesn't why doesn't any of this matter? Why 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 should it not affect being an everyday Orthodox Christian? Because it doesn't. It's like I said. One, it's not doctrinal fights. So we're not trying to argue about what the faith is. We know what the faith is. Everybody agrees on the faith. So if we're having administrative arguments, does that affect us here in Fort Worth, Texas? Not really. So the Ukraine, they'll get it sorted out. You know, yes. A friend of mine is, lives here, and she's from Ukraine. Uh-huh. And uh, I was talking to her one day and asked her, what do you think about all this stuff that's going on over there? And she goes, happens all the time. She happens all the deal. time. I'm like, really? Because people not, are, yeah. Oh, you people. got family back there, aren't you worried? Nah. Well, it's going on for a while. Well, and it's not just that, but, yeah, but you know, how many, how many times has the Ukraine changed hands? Yeah. Territorially. We live in our tiny little window of freedom and prosperity and, and history. That's been never, never, there's never been another like it. And so it completely skews our worldview into thinking, oh, well, doesn't everybody in the world live in a, in a three-bedroom home in the suburbs and with 2.3 children and they drive a $40,000 car? I mean, that's not the way the world has always been. Because it has been for us, you know, right? <sighs> yeah, rulers come and go. You know, whatever army... Put up whatever flag, whatever. That's fine. They've learned to just. They just learn. Exactly. Exactly. And so you know, and again, <laughs> that's what we do. Don't let any of this stuff worry about. It. You know. 
just be a be an Orthodox Christian. There's two there's two quotes that I want to share, and then we'll be done. One is I want to remind you of something Father Father Andrew said. God doesn't call us to be successful, but to be faithful. That's true not just to being like a missionary or spreading the faith or whatever. That that's true in our own lives too. Okay? We're not always going to be successful Orthodox Christians. Right? But as long as we're faithful and we pick up and try again, that's that's the key. And you, I, I think, too, you, you'd never really know who you influence. You have no idea. I've you had, have no idea. Yeah, I've had kids that I've taught or, and worked with come back to me 20 years later. Oh, yeah. Are you, aren't you Miss Johnson? That used to, and yeah. Like, yeah. I went to go see my high school English teacher. She was in the hospital. She's like, she sees me in a collar like, <laughs> Along those yeah. lines, I've always thought that when I meet somebody, I tell them Orthodox, it's strange, especially when my friends have me as a Protestant. Yeah. But someday they're going to meet a second person that's Orthodox, and it's going to be now it's, it is a move. <laughs> you know, it's that's not like, just wait, one strange person yeah. out there, but there are yeah. people that for are. A, you may be for a long, long time among all your friends the one strange person. That's okay. But I always have been. Anyway. Well, there, you there you go. So the other quote that I would share is this, and it comes directly to that. And it comes directly to what you just said, too. Um, St. Seraphim of Seraph said, Acquire a peaceful spirit, and around you thousands will be saved. Okay? Just be the best Orthodox Christian you can be. And you'd be amazed at how that influences people. Because again, if you are the one weird friend, but they know you as an authentic person who's trying their best in life, then what better advertisement could we have for Orthodox? Right? Even if you're struggling, but they see that you're struggling honestly, that you're struggling with, you know, faithfully, that's okay. Right? And if you know two people that are excited about the faith and they're both Orthodox, that's going to be profound. Yeah. 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 So, you know, don't let, whenever you read about the Ukraine, you read about, you know, there are people who have to worry about that. They're all above my pay grade. Yes. Coming from lifelong Protestant Southern Baptist buckle the Bible Belt. Absolutely. Um, where the foundation kind of seems to keep shifting. The, not so much who God is and who Christ is, but here's how we're going to go about accomplishing our mission as ABC Church on the Corner. Coming sometimes down to who's president of Southwestern Seminary at the time. A lot more often than you think. Yeah. Um, or where we're going to write our church, or where we're going to write our check to, or that kind of thing. Uh-huh. You know, or are we going to go across the street and start a new one? Right. And... Where evangelism, at the same time, is like we're all about evangelism, evangelism, evangelism. And trying to figure out how to do that and how best to make that happen. And then also at the same time, if there's something not going right in your personal life, then you're not praying hard enough. You need to go figure that out. And good luck with that. So yeah. it's, it's actually the, the discipline for, for us, for our family, the discipline of the Orthodox Church has actually been paradoxically very liberating. It's pray without ceasing, and oh, by the way, here's your plan for that. 
And oh, by the way, there's you know millions of people across the country probably waking up this morning and doing the exact same thing. And there's a huge comfort in that, so that when you, it's not that we're now free of struggle, but it's the here's how you're going to wake up and, and fight today. They have a plan and for then, the struggle. And then in doing that, evangelism just seems to kind of naturally happen. Here, here's the model that I see it as. A lot of Protestantism has a sales model for evangelism. Okay, um, I, I tried to do a sales job here recently and didn't do very well because I'm not a salesperson, right? Because what I found, but I, it did teach me a lot about the difference between sales and support. Okay, sales is this: lots of very shallow relationships, right? Get out there, get the numbers, and eventually somebody will say yes, and then you mark the sale done and you move on to the next person. Seal the deal. Seal the deal. As long as I have the right phrase and overcome the correct objections or pray hard enough, I'll get the job done, right, with evangelism, right? That tends to be a Protestant model of evangelism. Orthodoxy is more of support. We're here to support every each and every person, okay? We support each other, right? And our evangelism is when somebody sees that network of support and they're like, you know, I need that. And they come in and they join the network. Right. It's a, it's a much slower process. It's not a flashy process. It's not about overcoming objections. It's not about having the right key phrase. Well, if I just say the right thing, then they'll come into the Orthodox Church. No, they won't. You know what happened? If you're the right person, if you be the right person, if you be the best Orthodox Christian you can be, <coughs> not even trying to think about evangelism, but by your example, they'll be brought in. It is a much slower model but it is a much more lasting model because it's a much deeper model. I think that's what's meant when you say looking for authentic authority. Authentic authority. It's substantial. It is substantial. Oh, my God. When we came into the Orthodox Church 27 years ago, if we'd had any idea what we were getting into, <laughs> the depth of it, the depth of it, good Lord, that probably would have scared us because we were up here in this bottle. Right? We need numbers. Let's get those numbers in the door. I went to my brother's church a few years ago, and he's Baptist. Mm -hmm. And we were up there visiting, and <clears throat> I thought I was at a rock concert. Oh, yeah. It's like... Oh, it, you know what cracks me up? Scary. You know what cracks me up? It's so funny, though. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I shouldn't be like this. I should not be like this. But it so cracks me up. I was driving down Berry Street, and I saw Travis Avenue Baptist Church in this traditional service. <laughs> you have no idea, Protestants, what the word tradition means, do you? <laughs> no idea whatsoever. Give us that old time Old time religion. That's right. That's right. As we begin the 67th verse of Just As I Am, isn't there one more person? He was good enough for Peter. He's good enough for Peter. And here's, no, no, here's what I was thinking about last night, too. Okay, so you've got the Baptist bride theory, right? Y'all know what the Baptist bride theory is? You know how we draw the timeline of the church and we show it all splitting off? I saw a Baptist bride version of this where there's the real church and then it disappeared, it went underground, and then you had all this other stuff, and then suddenly the Baptists come back, right? The Baptist bride theory, okay? Then, on the other hand, though, you have the King James-only people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, what were the Baptist bride people using before 1611? <clears throat> if it's King James-only. 
I want to put like a King James only person and a Baptist bride person in the same room and get them. I, I want to hear their version of There's a phrase that you're taught you know. in Southern Baptists, uh-huh. particularly at the seminary. Yes. It's when you run across something that you can't answer. Uh huh. Like in Orthodoxy, it's a mystery. <laughs> yeah. It's the providence of God. Oh, providence. Providence of God. That's right. Well, we're not really sure how that happened. It's just God's problem. You know, in the Orthodoxy, it's ask your priest. And then the priest will say, it's a mystery. <laughs> but yeah, it's, you know, I was driving out on, and I, I don't mean to pick on the Baptists, but they're, they're so numerous around here. And that's, well, they're an easy target, and my mother's whole family. That's what I was exposed to growing up. Um, we would go to church with them, we'd go on vacation. And they're like, what, you're not taking your Bible to church? Well, what, they don't have one there? <laughs> yeah, that was a weird thing for me to get used to. Like, I don't have to bring my Bible to church here. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> this might be a dumb question, but wh- why There's do no you bring question. your Bible to church? So you can look at passages as you preach. Yeah, you're yeah, preaching you out. Like, you're not verifying. Yeah. You're verifying. Keep in mind. Keep in mind the sermon is. You know, if you have an hour and a half service, the, the, the sermon's an hour of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I checked. I checked my Bible. <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends on what translation, too. Yeah. You really just see that he, he didn't screw up? Yes. Well, I mean, part of that is also from, I mean, there, there's a verse, uh, I forget exactly where it is, yes. but uh, it was Peter. You didn't Wilson. do your sword drills today. I, I didn't, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but he says, like, don't, I mean, essentially paraphrasing, is like, don't take our word for it, get in the scripture yourself and yeah. check. Yeah. And yeah. so the, the, the Baptists bringing their Bibles to church, that's not, well, I don't see that as necessarily a wrong thing. It's not a bad thing. That's Yeah, that's it's not, not a bad thing. It's, yeah. a, it's a continuation of that idea. Of it is. Just because is. Father Mark is up there saying it doesn't mean no. inherently that it's true. Because I'm gonna there's go, no authority. No, no, no. No, no, no. no, no. Because, because I'm responsible for my own faith. <laughs> right. Right. The Bible is the ultimate. Right. right. Every, man, yes. every man's a priest. As opposed to, as opposed to especially... Now, now, keep in mind, of course, taking your Bible to church is a new thing because... Bibles having are Bibles are new things, yeah, yeah. and taking you know being able to take one to church, which is not the the great Bible of seven, you know fifteen hundreds. Well, yeah, people are actually literate now. Yeah. What why what did we use before people were literate? <laughs> Icons, Icons, stained glass windows, you know, bass release, bass relief, whatever. So anyway, all right. So next week, watch this video before you come. You know, six-minute church tour. We'll probably meet out the, outside the front doors of the church. Um, and uh, we will do our church tour next week. Then two weeks from now, make sure you have all your questions because it'll be your last chance to ask them before Pascha. Um, and then we'll have Palm Sunday, Pascha. And then we'll all be eating steak. <laughs>